Chapter 4 of Mr. Wicker's Window. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is made by Arthur Piantadosi, Los Angeles, California, February the 15th, 2010. Mr. Wicker's Window, Chapter 4. When Chris came to himself, he woke from sleep and lay for a moment without opening his eyes. He waited with his usual sense of irritation for Aunt Rachel's step at the door, and her voice sang, Get up, Chris. You're late again. But the step did not come, and feeling rested and hungry, Chris opened his eyes. What was this? The high regular walls of his bedroom were not around him, nor the familiar furniture. Chris sat up, rubbing at his eyes as if this would help clear his vision, and looked about him. He was in a narrow bed in a small sunny room, an attic room it would seem to be, for the walls slanted down in two different sharp angles from the low ceiling to the broad wooden planks of the floor. Two dormer windows projected from the room beyond the roof, making two niches in the wall across from where Chris lay. And a third window in the wall above his head showed that the, the room, as well as being at the top of the house, was also at a corner of it. A door was just beyond the foot of the bed, a chest of drawers, and a table with a blue and white porcelain washbowl and pitcher stood along the farther side. Wooden pegs were placed at hand level here and there, and a rag rug and bright colors lay on the floor by the bed. The walls were white, and the sunlight poured in to dash itself upon the floor and splash up the walls in irresistible gaiety. There was no doubt about it, bare though it was, it was a pleasing room, snug, clean and cheerful, and somehow well-suited to a thirteen-year-old boy. Chris half-smiled as he looked, leaning on one elbow, and then his smile faded as he caught sight of the chair and what it held. The only chair in the room was laid with carefully folded clothes, but they were not Chris's clothes. Chris jumped out of bed and then looked down with a quick startled intake of his breath. He was wearing a white nightshirt, something he had never even seen before and barely heard of. The sleeves were long and cuffed, and the nightshirt fell in linen lines to his feet. Golly Moses! Chris exclaimed, completely baffled. He returned to the examination of the clothes that were obviously laid out for him. It was a fine white shirt with full sleeves and turned back cuffs. White cotton stockings, knee breeches of a blue-gray worsted material, and matching frock coat with silver carved buttons. Below the chair, Chris saw, was a pair of black leather shoes with polished silver buckles. Fancy dress, huh? Chris murmured, and then, as if he had been slapped into full awareness, came the remnants of the evening before, of Mr. Wicker, and of the dark, flickering shop. Chris sat down suddenly on the edge of the bed, his mouth, in spite of all his efforts, drawn down at the corners, and his eyes blank with confusion and misery. Oh, my golly! Chris said, and stared at the clothes he still held in his hands. Then another idea struck him, and he jumped up to run to the nearest dormer window, the floorboards, where the sun had lain on them, warm under his bare feet. But no. No freeways. No factories. The window looked out over Water Street, skirting the edge of the Potomac Banks, and there below Chris's amazed eyes rose a forest of masts and spars of ships at anchor along the shore. Water Street, below him, was swarming with activity, but not the activity that Chris had previously known. 
Men dressed in the same sort of clothes as those laid out for him pushed cotton bales, rolled hogsheads along to the docks, or rowed out to ships anchored in midstream. Most of the stevedores were hatless, and Chris snickered at the sight of the short braid of hair at the napes of their necks. <laughs> Many wore brilliant scarves tied around their heads, red or mustard yellow or green, and the sound of deep voices swearing, laughing, or rising and un their sea chanties excited Chris and sent the blood tingling along his veins. He rushed to the high-placed window overlooking Wisconsin Avenue. No Cree bridge was to be seen in the distance, only stretches of field and orchards scattered with occasional houses of russet brick, and when he craned his neck there was the inn where the people's drugstore ought to be, a sign swinging high above the road. Wisconsin Avenue? Chris had to laugh. If it could see itself, only a wide, muddy road full of ruts and puddles along which someone's line of geese was waddling, impervious to cursing of carters and riders on horseback. A little below him, Chris could see the two old warehouses he remembered from the night before, but now they looked quite new, their brickers bright and their walls solid. Barrels had been being lifted by the winch and tackle into the upper loft, and Chris watched the busy scene for quite some time. His rolling stomach and a simultaneous smell of food reminded him of his hunger. Dressing quickly in the strange new clothes, he opened the door and peered outside. His bedroom door was at the top of a narrow, curling stair that twisted away to the left out of sight. It was steep, and Chris stood silent and intent on the top step, listening. A deep woman's voice was on Farewell and adieu to you Spanish ladies, came rolling up the stairwell to the accompaniment of a brisk clatter of pots and pans. What rose also to Chris's nostrils was the smell of newly baking bread, frying bacon in wood smoke, and the combination put an end to his indecision. For a while he decided to call the truce to any attempt at solving the mystery in which he found himself, and following his nose, went softly down the stairs. Rounding the last turn of the staircase, Chris remained in its shadow while he stared with unbelieving eyes at the Roman figure before him. If this is a dream, he said to himself, it's the best one I've ever had. Very best. What confronted Chris was Mr. Wicker's kitchen. This room took up almost the whole side wing of the house. Across from Chris, two casement windows showed the shrubs and flowers and white picket fence of Mr. Wicker's garden, and at his left was the back door opening onto Water Street, flanked by two smaller windows. These seemed most inviting, each possessing a window seat from which one could watch the busy comings and goings of the docks, with a view of the ships beyond. But what drew Chris's eyes and made them grow round with wonder was the extraordinary figure in front of the fireplace. The vast, deeply set fireplace was in the wall that faced the back door. So deep it was that there was even a bench on one side of it, and over the smoking logs were hung all manner of trivets, spits, and cooking irons. It was, in short, a fireplace that just Chris had never dreamed of. Yet the tall, buxom woman stirring the hissing pots and singing to herself was what held Chris rooted to the last step of the static stair. The woman stood easily six feet, broad and brawny enough to be a match for almost any man. Countless yards of sprigged cotton must have gone into the making of her dress to say nothing of her apron. 
A mastiff fichu of freshly laundered muslin went around her neck and was tucked into her bodice. A white turban was around her head, but on top of the turban, Chris simply could not believe his eyes as he counted rapidly. On top of this amazing woman's head was a gigantic hat supporting twelve and four roses and twelve waving black plumes. Chris's jaw dropped at the sight of the turbaned, hatted head, the flowers bobbing and swaying, the ostrich plumes blowing and curtsying with every slightest movement. As if blissfully unaware that her costume was not the usual one for cooking, the woman hummed and stirred, ah, ah, tasted and hung up a burlato. But the sight was too much for Chris. Before he could stop it, a shout of laughter had slotted from his lips. <laughs> he laughed and laughed in the indignant expression on the woman's face when she turned to stare, glaring at him with her hands and her jutting hips, only added to Chris's laughter. At last, sobering up somewhat, he, as he realized that his behavior was rude, to put it mildly, Chris stopped and caught his breath, shaken only now and again by a finishing paroxysm. Seeing the spark of bad temper in the red face of the enormous woman, Chris decided to pour oil in the troubled waters. Good morning, ma'am. I'm Chris Mason from upstairs, and I'm sorry I laughed so loud. I... He floundered and grabbed desperately at any passing idea. I saw something comical out the window there, he pointed wildly, and it just set me off. I hope I did not disturb you. Mollified, though not entirely, the woman accepted this effort at peacemaking, and her face eased a little. Well now, so you are awake at last, eh? And hungry, being a boy, I don't doubt. She moved to the dresser and took down a plug and plate. The Moses and ostrich plumes moving in, in agreement. So you a Christ, did you, did you see? Christopher, that would be. And I am Mistress Becca Boozer, should you be wanting to know. Becky Boozer, they call me. She bustled over to a covered bowl, dipping out a creamy milk with a long-handled dipper and set bread and butter and bacon in front of Chris at a table pulled up in one of the condo seats. It's up now, young man, Becky Boozer advised, every rose, rose and feather in sending her words. For Mr. Wicker will be wanting to see you when you have done. It's late, past eight of the clock, she glanced out the window. It might just be possible that Mr. Sasta Siley will be passing by before long for a mid-morning snack, and here I am gossiping with you instead of getting on with my work. Chris ate with a will, looking around as he chewed. The spotless brick floor and starched curtains at the windows, the shining copper pans hung beside the large fireplace, were proof of Maggie Boozer's housekeeping. Don't you have an icebox? Chris asked, his mouthful. Uh, what may that be? Becky asked sharply. To keep the food cool, Chris answered. Becky stopped to consider this, her hands on her hips. We have a larder on the cool side of the house, if that be what you mean, she told him, nodding. Keeps the food pretty well up on May, April or May. Then the heat makes everything go. Oh, the heat! Prosperity in Maryland, where I come from, and on the seacoast as it is, was never like this. 
A table with a wooden tub and dishes stacked nearby caught Chris's eye. Buckets of water stood between the table, and presently Becky Boozer took off a small pot of steaming water from a hook above the fire, poured it in the tub, and dipped cold water from one of the buckets into it. What a system! Thrust thought as he watched Becky busy with her dishes, thinking of the neat white kitchen he knew at home. Aloud, he said, if you had a little wooden trough that led from that tub up through the window there, or you could pull out a bung when you were ready and the water would run outdoors. It would save you carrying that great tub about when you were in a hurry. Becky Boozer rested her soapy hands on the edge of the tub and looked at him admiringly off her shoulder. I would never have thought it, she said, by the look of you. Never in this world. You have brains, young lad. That's what you have. A better idea than that I never heard. Indeed, it is just what I have been needing since years, and that simple I might have thought of it not myself. I shall set Master Siley to work on it when he comes. He's right handy with tools, is Ned Siley. At this moment, a short knock sounded on the back door. And an instant change came over Becky Boozer. It was impossible to imagine that anyone as ponderous as Becky could be coy. But at the sound of the knock, this was what she became. Wiping her hands hastily in one of her many pony coats, she pushed and pulled at her hat, which remained immovable, straightened her tichu, and, smoothing her dress, she minced her huge bulk to the door with a welcoming smile. A little man scarcely higher than Becky's barreled chat waist, with a rolling sea guide and twiggling blue eyes, bounced into the room and strained up on a tiptoe towards Miss Boozer's blazing cheek, crisp behind the opening door had not yet been perceived. "'Come now, Bucky, me love!' shouted Siley, the sailor in a good-humoured roar. "'How can I start the day right without a kiss from my boozer?' Becky blushed and simpered and cast down her eyes. "'Get along with you, Siley! What a way to behave!' she had momished, delighted in the back. "'See! There's company here!' She pushed her suitor off with an elephantine shrug of and gestured to Chris. Chris just was feeling the contagion of laughter catching up with him again at the scene he had watched. He was glad when the sailor turned and came over to where he sat. "'A visitor, eh? Well, well, of a ship?' "'No, no!' Becky put in quickly and gave Chris a look. "'No, he is a friend of the master's from,' she searched her mind, "'from another part of the country. "'He got here last night and slept late, as you've seen.' "'Indeed and indeed,' said the sailor, "'settling himself comfortably and as if for a long stay in his chair "'and observing Chris through his keen blue eyes. "'Well, young man,' he announced genially, "'I am sailor,' he said, stretched out a hard brown hand. "'Christopher Mason.' Chris said in return, and they solemnly shook hands, taking account of each other as men do when they meet. I shall sit here, Master Becky, at your leave, Siley cried out, as if Becky Boozer were a mile away, to keep this lot company, as it were. So you shall, Becky answered warmly, smiling broadly, wrinkles of pleasure at their corners of her eyes. And could I tempt you with a morsel, Master Siley? Ned Siley appeared to consider this invitation from all sides before he gave his reply, cocking his head on one side like a parrot as he reflected. Finally, he answered, "'How oh, could I refuse when I know your fame as a cook?' he said with a silent at Becky and a wink at Chris, and put his horny forefinger and thumb their distance of a thread apart. "'But a crumb, master's Becky, a morsel, a taste, just to pay my respects to your art, as it were.' 
Then such a commotion took place in the kitchen. Chris watched flabbergasted as Becky set before Psyli a meat pie, a large cheese, fruit preserves, two kinds of bread, cakes and cookies, ladies tarts and pickles in jars. And with a beaming smile, Becky flew from the cask a jugful of ale which she set down on the table with a thud. Just a morsel, Master Sally, she added, adding a coaxing chair. Try just a taste to please me. Ned Siley, his eyes winking with anticipation and smacking his lips, attacked the meat pie and the cheese, tarts and pickles with a will. Here, try this, he urged Chris, keeping the boy's plate as lavishly as his own, and the two ate in silence and gusto while Becky stood by with roses and feathers bobbing. You must keep your strength up, Ned Siley, she admonished, for tis a hard life you lead, she warned him. Ned paused long enough to swallow. Eh, thought it is, thought it is, he agreed, wagging his head, champing his jaws and digging into the food. A hard life, as a sealer, Ned said with an effort at sorrow, which failed signally, and he took a great groth of ale. Mm. After a while, he silently slowed, wiped his mouth with his hand, and leaned back in his chair, rolling a dazed eye at the anxious face of the waking Becky Boozer. Musterous Boozer, he announced. I am a new man, he heaved a sigh of repletion. Ah. You've saved me again. Ah, Mistress Becky, what a treasure you are. Becky curtsied and giggled. <laughs> Her fabulous hat shaking as if with a secret all its own. Just then a bell tingled at the end of the badge. Ching ching! That will be the master, Becky said, bustling away. Then she turned. I shall be back, Master Sidey. I pray you, do not leave. Chris seized his opportunity. Please, Master Sidey, he said, leaning across the empty plates in his interest. Why does she wear that queer hat? Master Siley cocked an eye at the boy before him, picked comfortably his teeth with an iron nail that he took from his pocket, and loosened his belt buckle. Ah, he said, so you've not hurt. Quick then, I shall tell you, for that is truly a tale. A sailor stretched back in his chair, one hand holding the mug of ale. His short nose and red wind-burned cheeks seemed to share the joke with his eyes as he finally leaned forward across the table with an air of conspiracy. End. Mr. Wicker's Window. Chapter 4. End.